This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world including 75% of the Fortune 500 trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com Atlassian the wisdom was emissions have to be 5% lower by Glasgow. Wow. For us to be on track. It's not that we need to be in a certain place in 10 True. years or 30 years. If we're to be on that track, they need to have dropped by 5% by Glasgow. Mm. Now, for coronavirus reasons, maybe they will, but that's not actually a sustained reduction. That's not what we need, right? That's just a drop of activity, which probably will change. Although we may get used to things like remote working and not traveling so much through coronavirus, not to say remotely that that makes up for the the loss of life and what's happening, but it may normalize other types of behavior. Mm. But that aside, this this is a everyday counts now. Every day really does count. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. And before we get stuck in, I just wanted to say a quick hello and thank you to all our new listeners out there for joining us. We know things are a little unusual at the moment, so we really do appreciate you taking your time to listen. And if you haven't already checked out our extensive back catalogue of more than 100 episodes, then please do have a look and let us know what you think with a rating or review. So back to this week's episode, Christiana Figueres is the former Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and it was her work that led to its members signing the 2015 Paris Agreement. Together with Tom Rivett Karnak, she created Global Optimism, an organisation focused on bringing about environmental change and social change. Their book, The Future We Choose, reveals that we are on the precipice of two futures, one where net zero emissions is achieved and one where it is not. And this week, they're talking to our editorial assistant Amy Barrett about the Paris Climate Agreement, why we need to reduce carbon emissions, and how we all have a role to play in combating climate change. And for anyone listening that that doesn't quite know the detail, what what was achieved? What was the agreement? What was the goal? 
So, so the Paris Agreement was structured in, a, in an unusual way and in a way that was a real breakthrough, right? Because for a long time, there'd been this breakdown in the negotiations around the issue of fairness. So um, developed con- developing countries would say for many years to developing... Let me get this right. Developing countries would say to developed countries, you caused this problem. And what's more, you said you'd sort it out in the early 90s. So go away and make real progress, and then we'll talk about a global agreement because we still need to develop, right? Mm-hmm. And that was right. That and was it right. is factually true. And it's factually true. And it's a logically consistent argument, and they're correct. Mm-hmm. And developed countries would say to developing countries, well, that's all in the past, but the future, most of the emissions might come from you, and so we can't solve this on our own. We need to do it together. And you can also defend that from a logical perspective, mm-hmm. even though the issue of fairness is clearly still there. Mm-hmm. So, so for years, I mean, with a lot of complexity and detail, those two f- sides sort of created a schism in the negotiations. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that that was ultimately resolved was by saying we need to have a two-part agreement. One is a shared goal as to where we'll get to in the end, but then nationally determined steps to get there. So there was a shared goal to limit climate change to well under two degrees and best efforts to 1.5 to get to net zero by 2050. And there was, a, and most countries came forward with their first five-year plan, which was you know the first five period, years of the commitment period. Now, the first test of that structure of like a long-term goal with successive steps towards that long-term goal is this year in Glasgow, which is why 2020 is so important on the road towards that ultimate outcome. Thank you. Um, And looking back now with sort of hindsight, you can see that that the, the, the climate agreements are synonymous now with countries failing to meet them is the term that he's he's used. Some people have come in to say, you know, well, the countries have pulled out or we've not met the targets. Is there anything that you could have, we could have changed now to stop any other countries? Obviously, the US is leaving at the end of the year. Is there anything we could be doing now to prevent that spiralling into something bigger? First of all, <laughs> that angle of Christiana's eyebrows, my far friend Paul Dickinson says that's how 195 countries agreed. This is very exciting. Yes. <laughs> to say that assuming responsibility for the future of the planet is synonymous with failing to do so is a total and dramatic lack of understanding of what we're dealing with here. Right. Secondly, <laughs> If the question is whether anyone, any person or any institution has the right to force a sovereign country to do something different than what it chooses to do, there's also a total lack of understanding. Mm. Thirdly, If the question is, would we change anything in the Paris Agreement? The answer is no. For the following reason. The Paris Agreement is not punitive. It is actually much more based on an incentive basis um, that we happen to think is more powerful. When the Kyoto Protocol was adopted in 1997, Industrialized countries assumed a legally binding reduction, each of them, and it was based on a punitive measure that actually imposed very high financial fines. Mm. 
And at the time, Canada was under different political views and administration and was not on track with meeting its reductions under the Kyoto Protocol. So 24 hours before the high fine would have been imposed on Canada, I received a very cordial note from the Prime Minister saying, Dear Executive Secretary, Canada hereby withdraws from the Kyoto Protocol. Because every country is sovereign. And that should be pretty clear in this country, in which the country has actually decided to do something that most of the world doesn't think is a good idea. But this country decided it. You're referring to Brexit. Yes, right. I'm referring to Brexit. So, you know, the sovereignty of a country should never be questioned, cannot be questioned, because mm-hmm. every country has to do what, uh, what it deems the best. So, so given the experience from a completely um, inadequate punitive measure that we had under the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement was very deliberately, right from the start in 2010, we decided we are not going to have the same logic under the next agreement. And we didn't know it was going to be called the Paris Agreement, but under the next agreement. Um, because we had, you know, painfully learned our, uh, learned our lesson. Furthermore, we also understood that the next agreement could not be a short-term framework as the Kyoto Protocol had been, but rather it had to be a multi-decadal effort because what was at stake now was not just a small incremental reduction of emissions, but rather those emissions that were set forth by science which is to get to net zero by 2050. And we certainly knew that if we had the chance, which we then built up, but if we had the chance to get all countries to agree to a framework, that would probably be the one in a lifetime opportunity. And that was not one that we could count on going for five or 10 years and then come bringing countries back again. And that has proven to be right. So the logic that is probably more than you ever wanted to know. But, uh, you know, when there is such a lack of understanding of the facts, then um, I feel compelled to correct Mm. the things. Um, So the logic that is built, that is upon which the Paris Agreement is built, is um, not anything that in any way, shape or form questions the sovereignty of any country, but rather quite the opposite. It is built on the sovereign right of any country to decide what is in their best interest. We actually asked each country to go home, do their homework, and do consultations with all of their sectors and come back and tell us what they could contribute that was consistent with their view of sustainable development for their own country. Lay out the vision that you want for your country over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years and then come back and tell us what is consistent with that, that at the same time contributes to the global need. And so that becomes the starting line for every country. At the same time, under the Paris Agreement, although you have different starting lines for everyone, you have one collective agreed legally binding target, which is zero net emissions by 2050. So you have different starting lines, but you have one collective 
end point. And as Tom has just explained, this year in Glasgow is the first time that each of those countries will compare, will review where they are with respect to their 2015 starting line and then go to what I would call the next checkpoint. Right. And are you two involved in that at all in Glasgow? Do you have any role in, in those? Well, ne- neither of us have formal no. roles. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we help and advise friends who are no. working there and clearly involved, but we don't have formal roles, no. Right, okay. Yeah. And it's interesting because we've talked a lot about kind of um, countries coming together and, and, and making, pledging to, to make action. Um, the book, though, turns to individual change. Obviously, it's the future we choose. It, it feels like quite a choice, but can individual changes really make a difference? So, so it's a it's a good question. So, so what we we don't draw a distinction between those types of actions at different levels of the system. Okay. Right. So, if you look at other examples in history, um, you know, if people said, "If I'm not able to personally solve this massive systemic global problem entirely on my own, then I'm not getting out of bed and having a go," it would have been insane, right? Down to fighting needed conflicts engaging in great shared projects, etc. You know, we all play partial roles in great endeavors mm-hmm. that we try and achieve to improve the world, if we're lucky, right? That's a privilege to play a role where you're you're a part of a whole. And the narrative that, you know, we need to have this direct power to do all of it ourselves is sort of nuts and has not been applied to any other issue in quite that way. So so we we in in the book, we suggest three levels of engagement as individuals, right? So the first is how we show up. We are facing a once in humanity opportunity to get on top of this issue. It's not once in generation, it's once in humanity. In order to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and to, to, to not go down the road of these really very alarming natural feedback loops and tipping points, our first task is to reduce emissions by at least 50% in 10 years. So that's 7.6% reduction every year, which is unprecedented. It's in excess of anything humanity has achieved. And when you say that to people, they sort of get this tightness in their chest and they sort of, oh my God, we're not going to do it. We're not going to make it. And they sort of get stuck by that. Now, where we start in the book is how do we show up in the face of that challenge? Because what we say is actually, you know, it's not an option to just sort of like roll over and say it's too hard. We, We don't have to believe that we're going to be successful or even that it's going well to make a commitment to meet this challenge with a sense of gritty, determined, stubborn optimism that we will be part of this major transition and we refuse to accept this awful breakdown of natural systems on our watch. The result of four and a half billion years of evolution, unique in the universe as far as we know. Right, so that's the first part. How do we show up? The second part is what can we do as individuals in our lives? So. We all have a footprint on this planet, right? It's only, you know, just our bit. Um, but what do we do about that? How do we take responsibility for that? So we, what we say is we all have to be commensurate to the scale of the problem. How do we reduce our emissions by at least half in the next 10 years as individuals? The truth is that we overestimate what we can do in a year and we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. If you look at the next 10 years of your life and say, I need to reduce my impact on the climate by half, that's enough time. That's enough time to replace the capital intensive items in your life that probably are causing most of the emissions. It's even enough time to sort of rethink, 
what do I want to do in the world? Do I want to retrain in some way that can contribute more, right? How do I change my diet? How do I, do I change my boiler? Do I change my car? Do I try and evolve? Like Cristiano and I, for example, have started a podcast called Outrage and Optimism. In part, we started that so we don't have to get on a plane so much and go around the world because mm-hmm. we've got time to invest in that, right? Mm-hmm. So that's an example of that kind of lateral thinking. And then the third thing is, how do we engage with power? So it's true just engaging with our own emissions on our own footprint won't solve the problem. It's really important because it is significant. And also it'll make us feel better if it'll feel more a bigger sense of control and participation for doing that. But we also have to engage with power. So that means raising our voices, pushing corporations to go further and faster and pushing governments at all levels. And that's an area where we're now seeing major breakthroughs. So, you know, The people on the streets, Greta Thunberg, who was in Bristol recently, Extinction Rebellion, these are amazingly positive developments. Mm -hmm. And history shows us that once we get to 3.5% of a population actively and consistently engaged in these things, they tend to be successful. Mm. That's not impossible, Mm -hmm. right, that we're going to get to that point. So we talk about those different levels of engagement, and we completely reject the narrative that we're powerless. We no longer afford the luxury and the indulgence of feeling powerless. There are those amazing people you've mentioned, Greta, uh, Extinction Rebellion, out there campaigning, but there are also, you know, climate deniers who are trying to campaign themselves, which seems a bit of a strange thing to say. But how do we tackle that? All the misinformation, all the kind of um, the nastiness that's come out, especially around Greta when when she came to visit, um, that's almost focusing our energy on that kind of distracts from the actions that we should be doing. But what can we do? Not focus on it. Not focus on it. Yeah. Do we not need to change their minds? No. Three and a half percent. No, st- statistically. Well, first of all, three and a half percent tips the balance. Um, but also, um, we we know that any societal change or political or economic change follows a natural distribution curve. And so you always have five percent of the universe, whatever you know it is, the relevant universe that um, actually are the leaders in the change that needs to take place. You then have about five to 10% following that that are early adopters. Then you have about 70% of people in the middle that are sort of looking both ways and not knowing what to do. And then at the end of that curve, um, you again have about five to 15% of people who will never move. And that doesn't matter because it has always been like that in humanity. It probably always will be. Um, And, you know, they play a certain role um, in in change uh, systems and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They are irrelevant to the change. And the more we focus on those people, the more, as you well said, the more we're distracting ourselves from the work that needs to be done. Mm. So, you know, I mean, to me, a person who is a climate denier and who says, I don't believe in climate, is as ridiculous as a person who says, I don't believe in gravity. It (laughs) doesn't matter that you don't believe in gravity. It is completely irrelevant. It still keeps you solidly on the ground, whether you believe in it or not. Same thing with climate change. So just forget about those people. Just ignore them. carry on and do what you need to do and and just to add to that stay calm and carry stay on. calm and carry on <laughs> it's, it's still good advice after all these years it is um 
when Cristiano joined the UNFCCC, right, it was six months after Copenhagen, and everyone thought that it was impossible to reach a global climate agreement. There was thousands of people who could explain in intricate detail all of the reasons why it would be completely impossible ever to achieve that breakthrough. And so the bit that I was privileged to observe, but first from the outside and then coming in, was Christiana's refusal to collude with that narrative of impossibility, right? And the way that it changed. And then once you change a bit, you begin to inject a bit of possibility and space into that. And then it changes again, and then other people get on board, and countries come forward with commitments. Unexpected things happen, and by the end, all of those people who said it was impossible are saying, oh, well, I always thought it was possible all along, <laughs> right? You know, they end up becoming the biggest supporters. And that's great. Mm. You know, maybe not the climate deniers, but, you know, they're, 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 they will be an irrelevant footnote to history. Mm. Um, but, you know, you yourself at one point said, I watched a few interviews with you saying that you kind of slipped up right at that beginning and then said that you didn't think it would happen in your lifetime. Um, how... How do you stay optimistic now? How do you stay... What, what gives you hope that things will change by 2050? I actually... I'm not sure if I slipped up. That's an interesting way of saying it. I don't think I slipped up. I think I was voicing um, the mood at that time. I didn't think anyone would have disagreed with me. So this was my very first press conference um, where I was asked many questions and then one one journalist asked me, Ms. Figueres, do you think, this was after, six months after the debacle in Copenhagen where all countries came together and tried uh, to reach a global agreement and failed miserably um, in the lights of all cameras of the world. And it was um, just an incredibly demoralizing event to everyone who had worked for years on it, um, including all heads of state, you know, President Obama being there in person, um, et cetera, et cetera, all, all heads of state. So I took over the negotiations six months after that, and I was asked at the first press conference, Ms. Fierce, do you think that a global agreement will ever be possible? And, you know, without thinking about it at all, I said, not in my lifetime. And I think that was a very powerful expression of what everyone was feeling. Everyone who knew anything about climate change or about the negotiations would have agreed with me, or in fact did agree with the sentiment that it was completely impossible after that disaster. But I am actually quite grateful to have gotten that question. And I recently think that I found, finally, after all these years, the journalist who asked that question. And if we can confirm that he was the one, because I spoke to him and he said, I don't remember if it was me. So we're trying to <laughs> confirm if it was him. Because if it is the person that I think, um, I really want to thank him truly deeply because I walked out of that room a changed person. I walked out realizing that if I accepted that a global agreement was impossible, I was actually condemning current and future generations for hundreds of years to misery. And that is not something that I could accept. And so I decided right then and there, well, so the first thing that we have to change here is first of all, I have to change my attitude. And then I have to change the world's attitude to this. And we have to move away from the 
box of impossibility, open that and move over to make the impossible, not just possible, but actually delivered. Um, and that was the work of the next five years. And you talked about subjecting. And it is, sorry, but it is not far away from where we are now, right? We are not very far away now because we think that this is the first time that we have a head of state or two or three that are against doing something on climate, but that is not so. Mm. You know, we will always have some, some in, you know, smaller economies or some in larger economies that um, don't want to be on the right side of history. That does not mean that history stops. That just means that they don't contribute to the advance of history. But the decarbonization of the economy is completely unstoppable independently of who is elected where, because the forces of decarbonization are much greater than a political cycle of one person. Um, and what we have to understand is that it is our responsibility, our collective responsibility, and that's why the print of this cover of this book says the future we choose and we is the largest word there, because this is not a single person that is deciding this. This is collective decision and a collective choice. And what we have to understand is that it is our now collective responsibility, not to ensure that we're gonna get decarbonized. That's gonna happen anyway, because if you look at the history of energy throughout humanity's life on this planet, we are on a path of decreasing intensity of carbon in our energy, um, in our energy evolution. So that's going to happen anyway. It's the pace of that that we're determining now. It is how quickly do we decarbonize, not if we're going to decarbonize. That is incontrovertible. What we do have still to decide collectively and choose collectively is how quickly does it happen? And on the speed of that, depends the quality of life on this planet. Um, and you've mentioned the, the misery that we would subject future generations to. What, what does that planet look like? But if we don't reach our target by net zero by 2050, what future are we choosing by that? So, so that's where we start in the book. Right? And we, we, we only have about 10 to 15 pages in a book of 170 pages that we dedicate to that scenario. Um, but we feel it's important, right? I mean, you know, fear does play a role in waking us up and there are, there's a lot of complacency about. So what we do in the book is we go on a kind of immersive journey to that world in 2050. And we base it on the science of what will the world look like if we don't make any more emission, any more efforts to cut emissions than what we have already, which takes us on the pathway to a 3.8 degree world, warming world, by the end of the century. And the world that we depict is 2050. Mm -hmm. So my children will be younger than I am now in 2050. It's really not that far away, right? We think of it as a long way away, it's really not. And, you know, we go through different things like the way how the air will be. It's entirely possible with additional decades of burning fossil fuels that you know, masks will be prevalent and common, things that we would wear to protect our lungs in most cities around the world. Mm. 
that you know the radiation um, will be greatly increased, or the heat of the of the different locations that that vector-borne diseases would expand their range, and that you know more and more people will be subject to West Nile virus, to dengue, to malaria, and of course also that rather than tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people being on the move and leaving their homes trying to find somewhere that they can make a life, that could be tens of millions or hundreds of millions. And that's completely different because that's not a temporary conflict in a particular location that will presumably at some point resolve and they can return home. There'll be no going home. So writing that section of the book, and you know, as we did, was actually a sort of strangely cathartic exercise because I think many of us are sort of like have a dim sense of that world, but we don't really have it in sharp relief. Mm. And bringing it into sharp relief was sort of a weirdly sort of like brought me a kind of calm resolve. It's like, okay, well, now I see it. And I know that I will work the rest of my life to avoid my children living in that world. Um, uh, but it's sort of taken the fear out. I just made it more real. Mm. There's no point panicking about that. We now know what it is. Once we've really absorbed that, now's our time to work. But while we still have the chance to do something about it. But but here's the underlying alarming fact about that which Tom has just described. It's not that we will determine that by 2050. We will determine that by 2030. Mm -hmm. Because it is either over the next 10 years that we're able to cut emissions in half and avoid the the world that Tom has just described, or by 2030, we will already have loaded the atmosphere so much that we will actually overflow emissions onto completely uncontrollable tipping points, not of several ecosystems that will act like a domino on each other and will so destabilize nature that we will never be able to pull it back. And what that actually means is that we will be in the world that Tom has just mm -hmm. described. But that is not a world that is going to, that we have 30 years to decide. We have 10 years to decide the future of humanity. And some, I, I actually saw someone point, um, shot me a tweet yesterday, which really brought it into sharp relief, where they pointed out that you know, because that annualized reduction of 7.6%. Wisdom by tweets. Wisdom by tweets. Yeah, <laughs> when yeah, did yeah. we finally, yeah, 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 when did yeah, yeah. we descend into exactly. that? Exactly. Um, what was the wisdom the of The wisdom was emissions have to be 5% lower by Glasgow. Wow. For us to be on track. It's not that we need to be in a certain place in 10 years True. or 30 years. If we're to be on that track, they need to have dropped by 5% by Glasgow. Wow. Now, for coronavirus reasons, maybe they will but that's not actually a sustained reduction. That's not what we need, right? That's just a drop of activity, which probably will change. Although we may get used to things like remote working and not traveling so much through coronavirus, not to say remotely that that makes up for the, the loss of life and what's happening, but it may normalize other types of behavior. Mm. But that aside, this this is a everyday counts now. Mm. Every day really does count. Mm. And you you set out two futures. There's, there's two options. So we've described... Um, the the choice we are making if we don't make active decisions to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, but what is the alternative? Yeah, that world is best described by Christiana. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually quite an exciting world because, uh, and it's the world that we really want our children and grandchildren to live in. Um, and it's a world where. Uh, 
we have actually gotten control over air pollution in cities. So you walk out of your house and the air is moist and fresh and it feels like you're walking in a forest because most cities will actually be heavily forested. Um, and we will have returned fertility to the soil and, um, and life to the oceans. We will be living, if you're living in a city, we'll be living in buildings that are on their rooftop producing either flowers or vegetables, or they have solar panels. And the size of the buildings will also either be absorbing solar energy to produce energy for the building, or they will be covered in green vines because we want to absorb the CO2. And all the buildings will actually be self-contained with respect to energy. So all buildings will produce their own energy. They will recycle their own water. Cities will largely produce their own food. Uh, we will have many, many fewer cars, much less congestion. And a lot of the space that is currently dedicated to transit of cars or parking of cars will be dedicated to either charging batteries or even more exciting to green spaces. Um, and that's a very different world. Mm. That's a very, very different world uh, to say nothing of the fact that many of the low-lying islands that are currently threatened with disappearing might have a very real chance of existing and being home to those populations. And to say nothing of the fact that we would be able to provide energy to the 800 million people who live in extreme poverty right now and who don't even have access to energy, which is the basis of, uh, of, of development and of getting out of extreme poverty. So it's a, it's a fairer world. It's a healthier world. It's definitely a more stable world and overall, it's a more prosperous world. But it's it's not a utopia, is it? There's still, I mean, we've still taken actions that will, you know, which we can't stop. It's not a utopia. Of. And in fact, many of the technologies that are inherent in that, you know, vision um, of a world are actually already being implemented. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we already have, obviously, we already have solar energy. Uh, and we already have wind energy, 25% of all the electricity produced in the world is already um, clean energy and renewable on track for 50% over the next 10 years. Um, and we already, we, we know that we can substitute this dirty internal combustion engine with electrification of transport and that transport can be more efficient and cleaner and smarter and interconnected and even driverless. Um, so, you know, yeah, most of it is actually already in operation. We actually already have a fully um, electrified and unmanned um, container ship that is cruising around the world as a pilot uh, experiment. And we know that there's already been uh, one airplane that went all the way around the planet uh, completely solar admittedly with only one pilot on board. Um, but these technologies are coming coming forward. I think what's interesting about what Christiana is saying is, I can't remember who said that 
that lovely quote that the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Mm-hmm. And actually both of those worlds are present in our world now, mm-hmm. which is what makes this moment in history amazing, right? At, at a certain point, we will set our path and it will be much more difficult to, uh, to change it. But at the moment, we stand at the fulcrum between those two worlds, which are present here. Mm-hmm. And it really is a question of choosing which future we want. And because there's evidence of both, right, that's what makes the difference between where do you set your attention? If you set your attention on, you know, on, on the pollution um, and on inefficient and disgustingly polluting transportation, well, then that's what you see. You don't see the alternative. Whereas if you set your attention on the progress in just in transport, but in many other areas as well, then you can see evidence of that world. So as Tom says, you there's evidence of both worlds right now, and they're vying clearly against each other. And that is why we the main message in the book is we have to choose. Both are possible right now, and we have to make one of them much more likely. But both are possible now. It's a matter of choice. So if there's one thing that you hope a reader to take away from your book, what is that? What is that message that you you want to communicate to a reader? So I I think one of the problems with climate change is we feel powerless. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's tough to pick one thing, but I would say coming out of the book with a sense of what's at stake, how you can engage with it, what's at stake, how to show up and what you can do. And And that you feel that you are an active participant in creating the future. And finally, you, you you both have children. You've mentioned your young children. Um, do you talk to them about these things? How do they feel? Because it's it's their future, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. How what's the the message among your children that they've got about the future? Well, it's a great question, and I think that um, you know there's lots of evidence to suggest that there are, there is huge amounts of anxiety now mm. around this issue with young people being, you know, really affecting their quality of life and their sense of their own future. So my kids are younger than would normally be associated with that. So they're six and eight. And so I do talk to them about it, um, but I talk to them about it quite gently. And I sort of explain the transition that we're going through. And I think I think the things which, which help is number one, when you actually do things around the house, to connect you to that. And you talk about the importance of small actions and how that connects to big outcomes. And also, you know, and we also do talk about, even at that young age, what meaningful lives we can live at this point in history. I mean, there's never been a time in history where we can have more of an impact on the future of the planet. And actually that should be motivating Mm -hmm. rather than terrifying. Mm -hmm. And my daughters are in their early thirties and they have been having climate change for dinner every night <laughs> since they were born. Um, both the threats and the opportunities, both, because I have been very transparent with them about both sides of this. Uh, and although they have cycled and circled through different uh, professional opportunities, they seem to have ended up today, at least for now, and they may go on to something else, in two um, activities that are um, quite, for me, very impressively uh, responsive to both the threat and the opportunity of climate change. 
So one daughter works on impact investment and um, has the responsibility for her firm of finding those investments that are have uh, the highest decarbonization impact. Um, and she started her life off in public health. So, you know, here she is back into uh, climate. And the other daughter um, devotes her life to, uh, in general, healing the grief around climate change and especially the pain that women carry. Um, one, there is an extraordinary amount of literature around the fact that uh, women are disproportionately affected by climate change, um, especially in developing countries, not so much in in um, industrialized countries, but especially in, develop in developing countries where women carry the responsibility of providing food, energy, uh, and water for their families. And food, energy, and water are highly threatened by climate change. And when it is the woman's responsibility to ensure that, and, and that becomes uh, an activity that is every day more difficult because of the distance to wood or because of the lack of rainfall for water or because of the increasing infertility of the soil that means that um, food is more difficult, then there is extraordinary pressure on women, self-imposed pressure because we want to tend for our children, but also very, very unfair pressure from the males in the family, the adult males in the family, who um, expect, of course, the same performance uh, under very, very dramatic changed conditions. So women are disproportionately affected um, by, by climate change. They're also disproportionately affected at times of uh, climate disasters, because in many developing countries, women are not even allowed uh, their independence of movement without the permission or with the uh, presence of men. And when you have an emergency, it's usually the woman who's at home with the children uh, and she's not allowed to leave or go or save herself or save her children. So um, the reality of climate change is not one that is felt and understood uh, in industrialized countries mm. the way it is in developing countries. And the reality, the impact of climate on women in developing countries is quite severe. Um, so yes, three, two, two daughters who are uh, full adults and I think very indicative of where that generation is going to go. Because if there's anything that is very clear is that uh, that generation and Tom's children's generation, that is the next generation, will is already living in and will continue to live in a world that is forever changed. And they will have to respond and adapt to and make the very best of um, this very changed world. It can be a much, much better world, especially if we all do our job over the next 10 years. That was Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak discussing climate change. Tom and Christiana's book, The Future We Choose, is out now, and you can also listen to their discussions on their podcast, Outrage and Optimism. 
In BBC Science Focus magazine this month, we look at the race to find the vaccine for COVID-19, find out from a botanist how to keep houseplants happy, and learn how to work from home according to science. As always, there's loads more science stories inside and on sciencefocus.com. And if you like what you hear, let us know with a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, be sure to check out our brand new bonus podcast, Everything You Wanted to Know About, where we get the brightest minds in their fields to explain, well, everything they know about it. It's in our feed, so make sure you subscribe and listen to them as soon as they come out. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.